You are listening to Preaching and Teaching on the Man of God Network of Podcasts. This resource combines expositional sermons and lectures from the classroom of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary to help equip listeners for the work of the ministry. Second Corinthians is a letter full of stormy weather. It is storming in the apostle's heart with the dark thunder of foreboding. He relates his tortured waiting for Titus for news of the situation so fearful to him in Corinth. Then there's a brief period of sunshine when Titus finally shows up with good news about the Corinthian church but the storm descends again. There is the forked lightning throughout the latter chapters of Paul's attack on the false apostles and his, yes, his angry defense of himself. Yes, 2 Corinthians is a stormy letter, but just because of that, the apostle Paul chooses to conclude this letter uh, to the beloved but troubled church in Corinth with what we may call a glorious sunset. It is one of the greatest spiritual blessings or benedictions to be found anywhere in the Bible. Indeed, I think that it is truly called the greatest of spiritual blessings. And so I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians 13, 14, the very last verse in the Corinthian epistles. I want to speak to you this evening on communion with the Trinity, the greatest of spiritual blessings. Here's the text. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. I think when we have studied this blessed uh, uh, benediction, you will agree with me that this is the greatest blessing that Paul could have wished the Corinthian church. But you may wonder why I'm speaking on such a text at a baptismal service. It is because the journey of Adam and Victoria to salvation is also a journey away from Trinitarian heresy to Trinitarian orthodoxy. Allow me then to show you the orthodox doctrine of the Trinity in this one of the premier texts about it in the New Testament, and then apply it to them and to you. If you give close attention, I believe you will see that no greater blessing could be desired than the Trinitarian blessing given us in this text. I would open up the text under four headings. We'll talk about the assumption of the text, the revelation of the text, the implication of the text, and then the benediction of the text before some brief concluding application. Here, then, is the first truth I want you to see in the text, the assumption of the text. There is something assumed in our text, but which is not stated in so many words, but is certainly directly implied, and it is this. There is only one God. That is to say, there's only one divine being. The pillar pillar and peculiarity of the Old Testament religion is found in Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. 
Paul, like all good Jews, was a stern proponent of this monotheism and would never contradict it, and he does not contradict it here. Though he does not state this assumption explicitly, he certainly assumes it. And with this assumption, something else closely follows. This one God is a jealous God and will not share his glory with another. Uh, with another. Isaiah 48, 11 reads, For my own sake, my own sake, I will act. For how can my name be profaned and my glory I will not give to another? The one God of the Old Testament is a jealous God and will not share his glory with another. But just as something is assumed in the text, so also something is revealed in the text, and consider in the second place the revelation of the text. Three persons are associated together in this divine blessing and in it given divine names. Paul's benediction explicitly shares the glory of the one true God, and it should be shocking and convicting to us, shares the glory of the one true God with three persons. The divine blessing comes in the wish for the Corinthians that they should have fellowship or communion with each of the three persons. Each of the three persons are given divine names. The Father is called in the text, the God. The Son is called the Lord. The Spirit is called the Holy Spirit. Each is used as a divine name in the Bible. We remember the words of Paul in his first Corinthian letter. First Corinthians 8, 6 says, Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. The three persons mentioned in the text are not three different gods. Paul could never have said anything like that, being the, being the monotheist, the Jewish monotheist that he was. In some sense, they must be one God and share the very same divine nature. When we put together then the assumption of the text that there is one God, with the revelation of the text that there are three persons who are God, only one conclusion follows, and that is the orthodox Christian doctrine of the Trinity. The conclusion must be that these three persons are one God, each having one and the same divine nature, not splitting the divine nature between the three of them, but each possessing the whole and same divine nature. This is the orthodox doctrine of the Trinity, Three persons who each possess or share one and the same divine nature. But that brings us in the third place to the implication of the text. The implication of the text. These three persons contribute to the work of redemption by assuming distinct roles corresponding to their eternal distinct personal identities. It's important not to miss this and modern Christians miss it way too often. It's important not to miss it and see it clearly in the text. This is because there's a tendency to be what I may call practically modalistic among many Christians today. We think and say, God, 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 where the Bible says, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
So let me explain what I mean. Modalism was an early heresy that denied that there were really three distinct persons in the Trinity. And while I do not think that many evangelical Christians formally hold that heresy, although some who profess to be do, I do fear that many evangelical Christians today think about God and salvation in a way that tends towards such modalism, because they rarely consider the distinct works, they rarely consider the distinct works of the distinct persons of the Trinity. But this text puts these distinct works right in our face. With this mentality dominating their minds and words, we cannot appreciate the distinctive works of the distinct persons of the Trinity in our salvation. And a great deal of the richness of our salvation is lost as a result. The meditation on this blessing this evening will, I hope, correct this tendency in any who might be infected by it here this evening. But how does this text bear witness to the distinct roles and functions of the three persons of the Trinity? You will notice that it does not speak of the grace of the Son, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. You will notice the text does not speak of the love of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I remember reading one commentator on the text who seemed to labor to say, well, it's the love of the the Son, of the Father, and the Spirit, and grace and fellowship belongs to each. And while this is true in general, it's not a good exposition of the text because Paul is specific and clear. It is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the love of the God. It is the fellowship of the Holy Spirit that he wishes to be with them all. Our text attributes a different quality or personal characteristic to each of the persons. And if we miss this distinctiveness, we are missing the unique contribution of this text to the doctrine of the Trinity. The Father did not die for us. Please don't say that in your prayers. And we should not thank him for dying for us. The Son did not elect us. The Father elected us in the Son. It is the peculiar work of the Holy Spirit to apply salvation to us inwardly. Yes, the Father and Son call and regenerate us but they do it always through the final and finalizing work of the Holy Spirit. But let me come back and ask this question. What more exactly are the distinctive works of the three persons of the Trinity for our salvation as we find them in this text? Well, we read first of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. When Paul speaks of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we do not have far to look to discover what he is talking about specifically. In this very letter, he has given the best and perhaps the greatest exposition of that grace that we could wish for. If you look at 2 Corinthians 8, 9, that great text, we read there, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Of course, an entire sermon or a series of sermons could be preached on these wonderful words. Suffice to say that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ focuses our attention on that wonderful condescension and compassion, that glorious humility and kindness, 
that made the Lord of glory willing to stoop down and die an accursed death in our place that we might come to share in the glory that he possessed with the Father before the beginning of the world. And this reminds us of the wonderful passage in John 17, which says, and this is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I glorified thee on the earth, having accomplished the work which thou hast given me to do. And now glorify thou me together with thyself, Father, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. So the grace, the grace of the Lord Jesus is his wonderful personal virtue and quality of kind condescension, compassionate humility, merciful submission to his Father's will. It is this glorious personal characteristic that made him willing to come down from glory to die in our place and for our sins. This quality, this grace is nothing less than divine and majestic, and it is glorious personal virtue. Paul wants us to know and find this person with this virtue, a blessing to be with us. He wants us to live in intimate contact with this grace. He wants us to have present with us Christ as the great accomplisher of salvation. And this distinct role of the Lord Jesus Christ reflects his distinct place in the eternal trinity. He is the Son of the Father and the second person of the trinity. And this is reflected as he is the one sent by the Father for our salvation. But we read next in the text of the love of God. The love of God. Now in this context, when Paul speaks of God... He means, of course, God the Father. He's not reverting to that modalistic trait that I warned you about earlier. He actually says in the Greek, the love of the God. And where that phrase, the God, occurs in the New Testament, it frequently, if not always, refers to God the Father. This is true in John 1.1. In John 1.1, the words the God are a reference to the person of God the Father, John 1.1 literally reads, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with the God, and the Word was God. So the reference is to God the Father in our text, and is clearly a reference to Him in light of the parallel passages in the New Testament. When Paul speaks of the love of the God, that is to say, God the Father, very much is comprehended in that brief phrase and much that I may not speak about this evening. Nevertheless, there is a text which tells us a great deal about what we are to think of when we think of the love of God the Father. If you would turn, please, to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, and look at verses 3 to 5. where we read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him. The text, the pronouns refer, just as the Father chose us in the Son before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy 
and blameless before him. In love, there's the word in our text, the love of the God. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. This is, this is what we should think of when we read of the love of God, the Father. We should think of the fact that in love, he chose us. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. We should think of him as the one who chose us. We should think of the one who, uh, of him as the one who adopted us and did so in the expression of that great love in the heart of God the Father. In our text then, Paul traces the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ to the love of God the Father. He begins with the work of Christ and traces it back to the work of God the Father. Here we learn that it is the peculiar work of the Father in salvation to plan or author it. He is the one who chooses or elects us that we should be holy. He is the one who in love predestined us to adoption as sons. It is out of the heart and love of God the Father ultimately that salvation springs. He sends the Son and the Spirit to save us. They come willingly. They love us too, and they love us in and with the Father. But Paul's doctrine of the Trinity allows him to specify the loving Father as the elector and predestiner and the adopter of the saved. Paul wants us to live with a sense of the presence of that loving God and Father. He wants us to live with a sense of the presence of that love of God, which chose us to be saved and adopted us into his family. He wants to experience us to experience more and more the unconditional, sovereign love of the Father. He wants us to have present with us as a part of our life, as the foundation of our life, as the pillar of our life. He wants us to have with us the love of God, the Father. He wants us to live in the presence of that love, to dwell in the presence of that love. He wants us to have present with us the Father as the author of salvation. And this distinct role and work in the plan of salvation reflects and reveals who the Father is in the personal order of the eternal Trinity. He is the first person of the Trinity. He is the one who eternally begets the Son he is the fountain from which the Trinity flows, and thus he is also the fountain from which the plan of redemption proceeds. But finally, we read of the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. The fellowship of the Holy Spirit. In the third stage of this Trinitarian blessing, Paul, having traced salvation from the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ up to the love of God the Father brings it all the way down and into our hearts. And what he calls the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. When Paul focuses on the third person of the Trinity, he speaks of the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. The word fellowship is a common New Testament Greek word. It's the word koinonia. You've heard about it. The word means all sorts of important things. It means partnership, partaking, participation, contribution. The fellowship of the Spirit 
is his partnership with us and participation in us. Romans 8, 2 speaks of the Spirit of God as the life giver, the one who gives us spiritual life. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. The fellowship of the Spirit speaks of the Spirit as the one who actually renews us, indwells us, makes us holy, assures us of our good standing with God. The Bible calls him the spirit of truth, the spirit of life, the spirit of holiness, the spirit of wisdom, and the spirit of adoption, working salvation in us subjectively, inwardly, personally. This is the work of the Spirit. And Paul describes it here as the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Paul speaks of this same fellowship of the Holy Spirit in Philippians 2.1, where we have a text parallel to ours. If therefore there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, you see what's associated with the fellowship of the Spirit, consolation of love, affection and compassion, Paul wishes for the Corinthian believers the increasing presence of the Holy Spirit in these his special works. He wants us to have present with us. He wants us to live in the presence, dwell in the presence, commune in the presence of the Holy Spirit as the great applier of salvation. The Holy Spirit is the mysterious third person of the Trinity. He is the one who eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. His work as the applier of salvation reflects his distinct place in the order of the eternal trinity. But all of that brings us to the benediction of the text. The benediction of the text. Paul ends the verse by the words, Be with you all. Our text is, after all, not a theological treatise. It is a practical benediction. It's intended as a spiritual blessing. We are blessed by the apostles' call to enjoy communion with each of the three persons of the Trinity in their distinct roles in redemption. The greatness and the glory and the riches of this Trinitarian blessing are that it wishes for us constant spiritual communion with each of the three persons in their distinct roles in salvation. The apostle says, let each of these persons and their distinctive works in salvation, let them be with you all. Let the, lower, let the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Meditate constantly. Commune always. Live continually in the shadow and light of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think of his condescension and humility. Let his example overshadow you and make you 
into his image. Think of the spiritual riches with which he has endowed you. Believe them. Appropriate them. Live on the basis of them. Think of what it cost him. Think of the spiritual poverty he embraced. Think of his being bereft of his father's smile, as we sang of this evening. The father turns his face away. This is what it cost him, that you might know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think of the spiritual poverty which he embraced. Think of his being bereft of his father's smile in order that you might never forfeit it. Oh, believer, may the Lord grace of the Lord Jesus Christ always be with you. Let the love of God the Father be with you. Meditate constantly. Commune always and live continually in the light of his love for you. Think of his foreknowing you and distinguishing love before the foundation of the world. Think of his choosing you in mercy as a result of that love. Think of him predestinating you to sovereign, in his sovereignty to salvation. Think of the sovereign certainty of your salvation. Think of the glory and destiny you have and that you will be publicly adopted at the last day as God's son or daughter. Believe these things. Appropriate these things. Live on the basis of these things. Ground your life on the fact of your, of your loving and sovereign election to glory by the love of God the Father. Believe on the basis of electing mercy that you will live forever with the Father. But the riches of this blessing are not yet exhausted. Let the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. Meditate constantly. Commune always. Live continually in the light of his secret but very real work in you. Remember that he is the spirit of life. The fellowship of the spirit speaks of the spirit as the one who actually renews our inward man, indwells us, makes us holy, assures us of our good standing with God, that he is the spirit of truth, the spirit of life, the spirit of holiness, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of adoption, working salvation in us subjectively, Inwardly, personally, this is the work of the Spirit. This is what Paul means by the fellowship of the Spirit. This communion with and indwelling of the Holy Spirit is part of the riches with which the poverty of Christ has endowed us. This communion with and indwelling of the Holy Spirit is part of the destiny to which the Father has appointed us. And so, dear Christian, in every trial... Count on the Spirit of Christ to comfort you. Count on the Spirit of comfort to be with you. In every temptation, call on the Spirit of holiness to be with you. In every perplexity, ask for the Spirit of wisdom to guide you. And when you feel spiritually dead and lifeless, entrust yourself to the Spirit of life 
to strengthen you because all of this, this Holy Spirit has been purchased for you by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you receive the Spirit by the working of the law or by the hearing of faith? You know what Paul's answer to that is. You, you, you received the Spirit by faith and count on his presence and activity, his inward, personal, and spiritual power in your life. Now, I hope you understand better this Trinitarian blessing. Paul devoutly, prayerfully, confidently wishes and pronounces upon the Corinthian disciples the loving presence of the Father as the author of salvation, the gracious presence of the Son as the accomplisher of salvation, and the intimate presence of the Holy Spirit as the applier of salvation. And I just want to briefly summarize some of the applications that we've uh, sketched out this evening. We learned the unity of the Trinity in salvation. There is only one God and only one way of salvation. Each person of the Trinity joins in working out this one salvation for us. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one in the work of salvation because they are one in their being. We learn the distinct works of the distinct persons of the Trinity and salvation. The Father did not die for us, and we should not thank him for dying for us. The Son, not the Father, was sent and died for us. The Son was sent, neither the Father nor the Spirit. It is the peculiar work of the Holy Spirit to apply salvation to us inwardly. We learn that there's a personal order in the Trinity. There is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that order is not arbitrary. There is a first, second, and third person of the Trinity, as our confession teaches. The distinct work of each person is the manifestation of his distinct personal identity. They do what they do because they are what they are. In the biblical doctrine of the Trinity, though each person is equally God, there is a personal order and distinct personal properties for each of the persons of the Trinity. There is an equality in the Trinity, amen, yes, praise God, but it is an equality that is consistent with distinctions. It is an equality where the Father authors, the Son accomplishes, and the Spirit applies salvation because this is the appropriate expression of who they are in the eternal Trinity. We have these nasty and awful and culture-breaking ideas of what equality means in our day. The idea that equality means radical sameness on the part of everybody. This is not what equality means in the Bible. This is not what equality means in the Trinity. What equality means is not what feminism has said since its foundation, role interchangeability. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are equal but they are not interchangeable. So equality does not mean role interchangeability. It does not mean this in the Trinity, and it does not mean this in human life, even though men and women are equal, and even though the three persons of the Trinity are equal, they undertake different roles in redemption which correspond to their distinct personal identities in the eternal Trinity. And then we learn the privilege of communing with each of the persons of the Trinity and their distinct works for us. 
we must commune with and meditate on the Son's grace and the Father's love and the Holy Spirit's fellowship. Make sure in this worship time, make sure when you come to church that you do not simply think of God in general and his blessings in general. If that's as far as you get, you're missing everything. We must think of the Trinity and the triune blessings that we have. Think of the Father's electing love, the Son's dying grace, and the Spirit's indwelling fellowship. And then finally, we learn the incredible and marvelous richness of our salvation, do we not? We must not only repent and mourn for our sins and worship, we must take heart, rejoice, and be filled with a sense of the richness of our salvation through the distinct works of the Holy Trinity. The text ends, be with you all. Paul says that this blessing was for all. Every Corinthian believer, every believer here tonight, this blessing is for you, Adam and Victoria. May you live in the blessing of it. I can wish you no greater blessing than to experience what our text speaks of. And I can wish all of you no greater blessing than this one. All of you who are believers receive this blessing. It is to be with you all. This blessing is also for believers who have messed up badly. The Corinthian believers and the Corinthian church had messed up badly. And yet Paul ends his letters, his stormy letters, with these words that we've just expounded. And so think of how badly some of those believers had messed up. Paul has talked about in this letter and yet he can still wish this blessing upon them. The dear believer here tonight, this blessing then is also for you, no matter how badly you have messed up in the last week. But you who are here this evening without Christ, this blessing is not for you. I wish it were. It would be the greatest blessing you could ever receive if it was for you but it is not for those who do not believe. But if you receive Christ right now, if you believe in his name right now, then this blessing will be for you. Here is the greatest blessing I can give you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Let's pray. Father, we come to you. We're so thankful for this doctrine we find in our Bibles that no one could have thought of inventing. This doctrine of the Holy Trinity, of one God who subsists in three persons. This doctrine, which is at the bottom of all our comfort and life and encouragement in this life. Oh, Lord, we ask that you would be pleased to grant your your saints here this evening a new appreciation, both of the distinct works of each person of the Trinity and their salvation and of the riches 
of this Trinitarian salvation, which belongs to them. Lord, we want to pray as well. If there's someone without Christ here this evening, and perhaps just a little desire has been ignited in their hearts to know what it must mean to be able to be confident that one is going to live forever with the Father. Oh, would you nurture that little spark? Would you bring them to faith in Jesus Christ, repentance for their sin? Would you make them jealous to have this blessing, these blessings of which we have spoken this evening? We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Preaching and Teaching, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CBTS is a confessional Reformed Baptist seminary which provides affordable online theological education to help the church in its calling to train faithful men for the gospel ministry. To learn more, visit cbtseminary.org.